Are you a fan of the small ball? I'm not as dramatic now as, as GM. Dramatic? <laughs> you sound like my wife now. Jealous of all the inside analysis and crack on the football pod? Well, we've got you covered with the Hurling Pod. Subscribe to the Hurling Pod feed on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. To the uh, report into the failure of the Irish women's team to qualify for the Rugby World Cup. I'm delighted to say Ali Donnelly is with us of Scrum Queens. Ali, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. So last Friday, the report dropped and uh, it's fair to say that it was generally positively received. Um, I did think a few things about it were, were odd, which we might get to in a few minutes. But what was your, you've, you've had a, a weekend to digest this and you've written about this in the Examiner, five key takeaways. Um, on balance, you seem to think it was a, a, a step forward but it's perceived with caution, I think. Is is that fair assessment of your takeaways? Yeah, I, I think a cautious welcome is probably the right way to look at this. And, you know, if you looked, if you took some time to look through the recommendations, they were in some ways almost underwhelming in that they were so basic and so simple. And they're sort of the kind of things you would expect to already be up and running and well established within a high performance program, which, you know, is supposed to be there to get the best out of players. So, you know, in some ways you could say, oh, actually, all they're doing are the nuts and bolts they should have been doing. But in another way, many of those things weren't happening. And so the fact that they are now, plus there's a commitment of, of you know, important new investments. Um, plus, I think the change in tone from the IRFU felt to me very important. I, I'm, you know, Kevin Potts struck a very um, conciliatory tone in the press conference that he did. And also you've seen the words that he he issued. So I do think we can look forward fairly positively to a new era in the game there. Um, while also kind of watching on to make sure that all these things do happen. How how is an audit of that ongoing? Like one of the things that was was seems to have happened is that the the players have accepted that um, the good faith rather of of the organisation has been accepted by the players. So who's going to keep a watching brief? Because when the players were at a bit of a remove or when they had the former players to be mouthpieces for them, that felt like there was at least going to be some kind of um, checks and balances in the system. How do we just make sure that this doesn't... It's not window dressing, the report isn't shelved, they go back to the old ways and everybody moves on with their lives. How does that... How do we prevent that happening? Yeah, well, I think that is what happened in 2017. So after the failure at the last World Cup to get out of their pool, you know, a whole new set of targets were published a year later, all of which I think almost all of them um, haven't been met because nobody really understood what lay behind that. How are you going to achieve that? What do the players know about where you're going? Whereas this time, I think you do have, um, they published a progress report alongside it so you could see, you know, what targets or what recommendations were already in train. And we had a promise from Kevin Potts that there would be an implementation plan published. There's also another review coming later this year, which is looking at the whole game. So presumably it's around, you know, how you get more women into grassroots, how you link those things up along a pathway. So I think this does feel a little different. Um, you know, yes, of course, like, you know, there are cynics and I, I've definitely been one of those in the past around the IRFU's ability to deliver for women and girls. Um, so I think we've got to keep hold of that. But I, I also think hopefully those four players who've been involved in the discussions and maybe joined by others can stay involved. They seem to have built a good relationship now with various people at Sport Ireland and government and at the IRFU. And, and I think it would be foolish to the IRFU not to use them as a 
you know, a kind of consultation group or a sounding board, etc. The the main sporting bodies, and I'm talking about the big three, the FAI, the GA, and the IRFU, always like to keep Sport Ireland at as uh, at least an arm's length remove and even further if possible. They'll take the, the funding and they'll make sure that that happens, but they don't want any interference or any sense of like, what, what do you, why are you, this is none of your business, this is our organisation. Um, and yet it feels like Sport Ireland through the, are the, essentially the mouthpiece for the government and the government have been very strong on uh, female representation on committees and all that kind of stuff. So it feels like the IRFU really, really need the women's game to take off. They need the influx of female coaches, administrators and extra players who they can, you know, generate revenue from and sell tickets to and sell merchandise for. And the penny, that penny hasn't quite dropped. It certainly hasn't dropped with the other organisations too. And we're going to talk about the, the merger in the GAA in about 20 minutes. But why is that, do you think, Ali? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think on the first bit around the influence and the importance of Sport Ireland ministers, you know, the players wrote the letter to the ministers for a reason. You know, they felt that they tried to make change internally for years and nothing was happening. So they knew that, you know, go, going almost over the head of the IRFU, which is essentially what that was, and, you know, getting some public pressure via TDs and so on in in, in government around funding would help. Um, I think in terms of women's rugby, like I can't speak for the other sports there, but there, the penny has dropped in other countries, and, and and the penny is that you know the dropping is that understanding that if you're a national governing body, you know part of your job, among many others, and I don't think NGB have it easy to be honest, um, but part of your job is to recruit players into your sport, and the most kind of single most important strategic area of participation growth in almost every country, particularly the established nations, is women. And I think you know I'm I'm talking to you in, in London, and I you know for all their flaws, I know the RFU over the years. Um, they have now understood that a bit quicker than Ireland, and they've put, you know, they've made women, women and girls rugby um, a strategic priority. And you can see the difference here. Now they always have an inbuilt advantage in terms of numbers here, um, but the penny hasn't dropped amongst everybody involved in women's rugby or rugby in Ireland. It might now have at the at the top of the game, um, but you know, Kevin Potts has got a hard job. He's got to almost bring his whole organisation and all the volunteers around the game with him and say. You know, we need the growth of, of women and girls rugby because one of my jobs is to make sure the games in route health at grassroots level and all the numbers, all the big numbers are coming from this part of the game. And then the other end of it, just to finish off, is there's a massive opportunity in terms of longer term return on your investment. So, you know, where are the new TV deals being struck and where are we likely to get more and different sponsorship investment? Well, that's a women's game at the highest level. So, you know, organisations would be foolish to ignore that, I think, in the long run. Obviously, the full details of the report haven't been published, but if you look at the recommendations, you can probably read between the lines as to what was included in the report. And some of the things here, like just really uh, going through just some random uh, uh, episodes within this, create and constantly monitor a value-driven culture and environment based on performance, learning and enjoyment is one of the recommendations. Another one uh, is put deliberate attention on the fitness, strength and conditioning of front five players in the system. I think what that suggests is that that hadn't been done and that was recommended within the report or mentioned within the report. And I think some of those details uh, may actually be shocking to people if that report was ever brought to light about some of the things that weren't being done within the system. Definitely. And I think the thing to say, if you're not a women's rugby kind of follower, is that the women's game has moved on massively uh, since the last World Cup. And Ireland have stood still. And if those things were missing, I'm sure some of them, some of those were there and some guys but not clearly at the level they should have been otherwise Amanda Ben and her team wouldn't have felt the need to black and white put them in there um, then they were going to fall behind I mean if you look at Scotland who are the team I guess who leapfrogged Ireland and, and secured that last place at the World Cup later this year they did a quite innovative thing a few years back and they gave a bunch of players what they call 2021 contracts 
which were, you know, that's something contracts are not the be all and end all, but they identified we need to do something different here to try and qualify for the next World Cup. And we need to put in place some, you know, interesting high performance ideas um, to do that. And, you know, that wasn't, that sort of thinking wasn't happening there. Um, and it's going to have to change because there's only a three year window now to the next World Cup. I don't know what the qualification path's going to look like, but Ireland are going to have to be at that World Cup. It looks like it's going to be here in England. Um, and so there is not much of a window now for error and, and they've got to try and play catch up even with nations that they would expect to normally beat the Scotland, Wales and Italy's of this world. Um, so it be really interesting Six Nations this year just for that perspective alone. One of the um, other things, we had Hannah Terrell on the show yesterday and she was talking about her decision to step away was like, uh, she was always going to stop away at the end of the last World Cup, but just talking about the difficulty that some of the players have in mixing the um, career path that they want with outside of rugby with the career path inside rugby and how difficult it is to juggle those. That that is going to be an issue for the IRFU. Is that where the extra million needs to go in the short term, or is the extra million actually better spent on coaches and pathways to make sure that the long term we produce players who are ready for the international game and hope that the sponsorship catches up and that pays the players? I, I, it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario. I'm interested in your view on that, given your proximity to what's going on in England and you kind of have a, a good sense of what's happening in the other unions as well. Yeah, I don't think you can put contracts in place without the nuts and bolts um, underneath it. And, and I think there's some people who are quite concerned in Wales, where there are a lot of, um, you know, um, structures and processes missing around the pathways and the grassroots, and they've kind of come in over the top of that and handed players contracts. And that's going to be an interesting kind of story to watch. I, I think inevitably, if you want to keep up and you want to win things and you want to be in the sort of back in the top four in the world, which Ireland were once in, of course, you are going to have to at some point bite the bullet and look at contracts. Now, they may be hybrid contracts, which are a balance between sort of paying your players on a part-time basis, allowing them to continue with their careers, or full-time as England have gone. Because you know, even since 2017, more and more countries are looking at this. New Zealand have gone fully pro this year, um, which if, you, if you've been following the game for a long time, the NZ are, have, have traditionally not invested significantly in their national team. They used to just win anyway. So that's a big move. France are obviously paying players. Scotland have started to do it. Wales have started to do it. So eventually you're going to have to look at that and, and probably go down that path because it's going to be too hard to keep up and you're going to be competing in second tier um, rugby. And if you know if that's acceptable, fine. If it's not, and I suspect it isn't for Ireland, um, that's something they're going to have to look at. But the other bits of the jigsaw have to be in place first. It does seem that the IRFU maybe have been caught by surprise with how quickly the game has accelerated. Yeah, and if you know if you're not taking the time to look around you and to explore what's happening in other countries and and really kind of you know ha- have the insight and knowledge about how to make high performance sport work for women, then that's what's going to happen. And I think it's clear from these recommendations that all of those things weren't happening, <laughs> and so it's, it can't be a surprise really that they've fallen behind um, other countries. And and I think it's important that therefore that Kevin was the front of all of this. I think he clearly understood that. You know, I as the chief executive have to lead this and own it because the trickle down effect of that is massive. And and hopefully, you know, we do start to see that sort of change creeping in over the next year or so. Uh, you did make the point that um, he, he it does sound like the IRFU are a new voice on this. I am definitely cynical about the fact that somebody who was so centrally involved in the operations of the IRFU is now fronting this and I hope that it's a change but um, you know it's not somebody who has come in from the outside and immediately diagnosed problems. It's somebody who's 
who's been there the whole time and yeah. who was the chief operations officer. And so, you know, would have should have known about this and should in the past have been able to influence the outcome. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I think we definitely need to keep a, a close eye on this. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point because it's inconceivable that he would not have been aware of some of the challenges around the programme and he might not have been as in-depth involved as, as others in the senior leadership team there. Um, but curiosity alone, I think, would um, dictate that you would understand the problem. So I think that's fair enough. But I do think you have to take what they announced last week at some face value. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of the players and they, they were pretty impressed with him um, and the way that he conducted himself and the commitment that he's shown. So, you know, all, all you can do there is sort of say, well, if they're happy, then, you know, let's move forward with some positivity. And I think, you know, Fiona Copeland said it herself on television the other night, we've got to start looking forward. We spend a lot of time looking backwards in the Irish women's game and, and sort of, you know, becoming annoyed and angry at what hasn't happened. And um, yeah, I think it's up to everyone involved in the game, stakeholders and the media included in that, to continue to hold, um, you know, the RFU to account and hold their feet to the fire on whether they actually deliver what oh. they said they would. One last point on this then. Um, the the actual high performance director of the RFU wasn't part of the press conference announcing this, which, which did feel strange as well. So maybe a divorce between um, David Yusufor's responsibility and whoever is coming in to, to run the women's game isn't necessarily a bad thing. And, and maybe having separate performance directors for the men's and women's game is the direction this needs to go. I'm just not sure about why the high performance director wasn't there to discuss the high performance or the, the failings in the high performance unit with respect to the women's team. Yeah, I think that's a fair point too. <laughs> I suspect the CEO felt that, you know, for this to be seen as real serious change that he needed to front it. But I do think whoever is kind of running the women's game on a day-to-day -day and whoever they report into have got to believe in all the things that we've just talked about so that it is a strategic area of priority. I don't know uh, David and I don't know his position on all of this, but you know, he certainly has to buy into this or it won't work. What was your read on the timing of the Anthony Eddy uh, departure? I'd, honestly, you know, not involved enough behind the scenes to hazard a guess at what actually happened there. But, you know, I, I think his position in the Irish Women 15s programme was un, untenable um, and inevitable that he would have moved on from that. Looks like he's decided to to leave himself. Um, look, my understanding of, of Anthony is that he's, he's a fantastic coach um, and perhaps, you know, was given far too big a job and inevitably focused on one area and sevens over 15s is probably looks to me like what he decided to do. Um, you know they've got a, you know they've got people in there now who are given the right time and resources to do the job properly and hopefully that's what we're going to see Ali good stuff thanks a million for joining us this morning cheers thank you you should check out scrumqueens.com for more on women's rugby that's Ali Donnelly who founded Scrum Queens OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar